MSW Media. This episode is brought to you by Jiminy's, maker of sustainable dog food and treats made with cricket protein that's better for the environment, uses less land and water to produce. Cricket protein is a superfood that's delicious, nutritious, and easy to digest for dogs. Save 25% on your first purchase by going to Jiminy's.com slash DailyBeans25 and use code DailyBeans25 at checkout. And thanks to Aura Frames for supporting the Daily Beans. Aura Frames makes digital picture frames designed to easily fill your home with photos of family and friends shared instantly from an app. From now until Father's Day, save on the perfect gift and get up to $20 off your order while supplies last by going to AuraFrames.com and use promo code Daily Beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, June 6, 2022. Today, Trump advisor Pete Navarro has been indicted and arrested for criminal contempt of Congress. Simultaneously, the Department of Justice told the 1-6 committee they would not be indicting Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino for criminal contempt. A Pence aide told his Secret Service lead that Mike Pence could be at risk the day before the attack on the Capitol. And strategy memos prepared for Republican candidates advised them to ignore guns and talk inflation three days after the Uvalde shooting. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. I hope you had a great weekend. There was a lot of news that dropped. We're going to get to most of it (laughs) as much as we can. We might have to put some stuff off till tomorrow. But this week is also going to be a crazy news week with the with the hearings beginning on June 9th, 8 p.m. Eastern time. You're going to want to be around for that. Um, Dana's going to be back tomorrow with us, and she's going to also be back with the good news. We're going to forego the good news today so that she can be here when we read it. And instead, I'm going to be talking with Glenn Kirshner, host of Justice Matters and former federal prosecutor. We're going to be talking about the Scavino, Navarro and Meadows thing that happened over the weekend. Also out today, an episode of Muller She Wrote and a new episode of the MSW Book Club where I cover Ellie Mastal's instant New York Times bestseller, Allow Me to Retort. You can check those out. And thanks to our patrons. Thanks to you. We are able to make these shows happen. And right now we're, we have this program where if, you know, if you want to donate a one-year premium feed, ad-free feed to someone who can't swing it right now, you can do that. And then you can also sign up to receive a donated one-year premium feed. You get this show, MSW Book Club, and Miller She Wrote, all ad-free, plus access to the weekly Zoom meetings and our private online groups and Discord and all that cool stuff for discussions. So you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Muller She Wrote. All right, we have a lot to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, first up, former Trump White House official Peter Navarro has been indicted on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress after refusing to comply with a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. And that's according to the Justice Department and their announcement on Friday ahead of the first televised public hearings of the panel this Thursday. The development was a boon to the committee, threatening criminal consequences for a former Trump aide who defied them. But at the same time, the Justice Department revealed it would not prosecute two other higher ranking aides, chief of staff and deputy chief of staff Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino. Navarro, who was a trade advisor for Trump, revealed he also received a grand jury subpoena from the Department of Justice as part of a probe. And he filed a lawsuit on Tuesday against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the bipartisan House committee. Navarro, who's 72, is charged with one contempt count involving his refusal to appear for a deposition and the other contempt count 
because he refused to produce documents to the committee. That's according to the seven page indictment returned Thursday and unsealed Friday. Now, Navarro is the second former Trump advisor to face criminal charges in connection with rebuffing the committee. And his charges mirror those sought by the House filed by federal prosecutors in November against Bannon after he refused the committee's requests. At an initial appearance on Friday afternoon in federal court, he would not shut up. He accused prosecutors in the FBI of misconduct, suggesting that the timing of his lawsuit and the charges against him were part of a race to the courthouse. Navarro did not enter a plea and said he would seek to postpone his June 17th arraignment and criminal proceedings until his civil suit is resolved, potentially running out the clock on efforts by the committee this year. Magistrate Judge Zia Faruqi released Navarro on personal recognizance on standard conditions that he notify the court before he travels and added, if the government has acted improperly, they will will hold their feet to the fire and make sure there's consequences. But they did not. (laughs) I want to reiterate that the Department of Justice contempt charges do not exist to compel Navarro to testify. That sort of happened on a Jim Acosta interview with uh, Officer Fanon. He's like, why do you, you know, why do you, what do you think about the DOJ, you know, failing to compel him to testify when they talked about Meadows and Scavino not being indicted? These charges don't compel anyone to testify. They just punish them for not. They punish them for failing to comply with, with those subpoenas from the committee. To address the Meadows and Scavino's declination, it's my personal opinion, after talking to many former federal prosecutors, and I'm going to talk to one soon here in a minute when we talk to Glenn Kirshner after the break, and it's my personal opinion, the Department of Justice used prosecutorial discretion to decline to bring those charges because both Scavino and Meadows did partially cooperate with the committee, and those charges aren't as cut and dried as Navarro's and Bannon's are. Also, once you charge Meadows and Scavino, the Sixth Amendment kicks in, which would complicate any bigger conspiracy investigation. As Barb McQuaid put it, if they charged them for contempt misdemeanors, they couldn't use informants against them and they'd have the right to know the evidence that is being used against them as well. I have to assume the Department of Justice also subpoenaed Meadows and Scavino for their info the way they subpoenaed Navarro. You'll notice that they subpoenaed Navarro to hand over all communications with Trump by June 2nd. That's the Department of Justice subpoena, not the 1-6 committee subpoena. And then they indicted him the next day. Now, that says to me that they realized they'd get nothing from Navarro, so they charged him with contempt because he's a completely useless witness. All right, next up. The day before the mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol on January 6th, on January 5th, the day before, Vice President Mike Pence's chief of staff called Mr. Pence's lead Secret Service agent to his West Wing office. That chief of staff, Mark Short, had a message for the agent, Tim Gables. He said the president was going to turn publicly against the vice president and there could be a security risk for Pence because of it. The day before. The stark warning, the only time Short flagged a security concern during his tenure as Mr. Pence's top aide, was uncovered recently during research by this reporter for an upcoming book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America, which is going to be published in October. Mr. Short did not know what form such a security risk might take, according to people familiar with the events. But after days of intensifying pressure from Donald on Pence to take the extraordinary step of intervening in the certification of the electoral count to forestall Trump's defeat, Mr. Short, Mark Short, seemed to have a good reason for concern. The vice president's refusal to go along was exploding into an open and bitter breach between the two men at a time when Trump was stoking the fury of his supporters who were streaming into Washington. Short's previously unreported warning reflected the remarkable tension in the West Wing 
as Donald and a band of allies, with the clock running out, searched desperately for a means of overturning the election. Trump grew agitated as his options closed, and it became clear he was failing in his last-ditch effort to muscle his previously compliant vice president into unilaterally rejecting the vote outcomes in key states. This warning about you know, security threats to Pence also shows the concern at the highest levels of the government about the danger that Trump's anticipated actions and words might lead to violence on January 6th. It's unclear what, if anything, Mr. Giebel's who was the, you know, Tim, the Secret Service agent for Pence. It's unclear what he did with the message, but as Mr. Trump attacked his second in command and democratic norms in an effort to cling to power, it would prove prophetic, as we know. A day after Short's warning, as you know, 2,000 people, some chanting hang Mike Pence, stormed the Capitol. Outside, angry Trump supporters erected a mock gallows. After Pence was hustled to safety, Mark Meadows, White House chief of staff, is reported to have told colleagues that Trump said that perhaps Mr. Pence should have been hanged. Mr. Short was asked about the conversation with Mr. Giebel's during an interview with the House committee investigating the Capitol riot. That's according to a source familiar with his appearance. New details from the weeks leading up to January 6th will help flesh out how Trump and his allies sought to intimidate Pence into accepting their baseless theory that the vice president has the authority to overturn elections. Now, a spokeswoman for Secret Service didn't respond to an email seeking comment, nor did uh, a spokesman for Pence. Now, Pence said about five months after the Capitol attack, there's almost no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. A few weeks after Election Day on November 3rd, it was Election Day, a few weeks later, aides to Mr. Pence learned that some in Trump's loose network of advisors were discussing the possibility of January 6th set under statute as the day of the Electoral College certification as a potentially critical date in Trump's efforts to stay in power. Soon, Pence asked his general counsel, Greg Jacob, to write a memo explaining what his powers were during the certification. The memo did not take a clear position, but Mr. Pence's advisors continued to research the issue, ultimately concluding that the vice president has no authority to dictate the outcome. He can't just throw electoral votes out. But Mr. Pence and his team were faced with regular pressure from a cast of Trump supporters arguing that he did have such power. We've seen a lot of these memos. At the end of December, Pence traveled to Vail, Colorado for a family vacation. And while he was there, his aides received a request for him to meet with Sidney Powell, right? Now, the request to meet with Powell was relayed through Kelly Ward, chair of the Arizona Republican Party. That's according to a person familiar with the exchange. Ward had joined a suit filed by Gomert, Republican of Texas, that asked a court to say that Mr. Pence could decide whether to accept or reject slates of electors from states during the Electoral College certification. And Jamie Raskin has called that lawsuit a very important key in the plot to overthrow the government. The lawsuit was asserting precisely what Pence's aides argued he did not have the power to do. Some Pence advisors were suspicious that Sidney Powell wanted to serve the vice president with legal papers related to that case. Interesting. She's under investigation by the Department of Justice, by the way, and has been since at least September. Mr. Short objected to Mrs. Ward's support of the suit. She relayed to him that they would not pursue it if Trump was uneasy with it. The proposed meeting with Powell never happened. Powell and a spokesman for Ms. Ward did not respond to emails asking for comment. There were other points of friction that left the Pence team on high alert about the pressure campaign. Meadows told Mr. Short that the president was withholding approval of a pot of transition funding for Pence to establish a post-White House office. I'd like you to do us a favor, though. That's what the fuck that is. That's new reporting. He was trying to withhold post-White House money for him to develop an office. 
That's extortion. Now, amid the rising tension, Mr. Short reached out between Christmas and New Year's Day to Jared Kushner. That's we know who he is, Trump's son-in-law and senior advisor, asking how he could defuse what was becoming an untenable clash between Pence and Trump. Kushner deflected the outreach, saying he was busy. He was wrapped up in bringing peace to the Middle East. At one point, and this guy, I think, has been overlooked quite a bit. At one point, John McEntee, head of the presidential personnel office. Remember the guys who used to ice people by hiding Smirnoff ices in, in the office? And if you found it, you had to chug it. This fucking guy. He wrote a handwritten note that circulated in the West Wing that seemed to acknowledge that Pence did not think he could influence the outcome of an election. As you guys know, I reported exclusively months ago the fact that Pence's team's badges were deactivated and he was unable to get into any offices in the Capitol and hide. And that's why he was forced down into the loading dock. No one else has corroborated that reporting. My sources are pretty strong. But McEntee would be the guy to deactivate those badges. And that that we now know he had a handwritten note that circulated in the West Wing that acknowledged Pence didn't think he would influence the outcome of the election. It's just very interesting. Especially Mark Short telling Secret Service, Pence's Secret Service chief, this could be dangerous. And then, of course, we all remember the, the part where Tim, who Mark Short told about this, pulled up in a car and said, get in the car. And Pence was like, dude, I trust you, but I'm not getting in that car. And we also know that the crime fraud exception email, the one to Rudy Giuliani that Eastman forwarded from Kenneth Cheesebro, that memo, that was supposed to, to be about having Vice President Pence recuse from counting the votes and not be there and have Grassley take over. And as we know, Grassley said he would be on the fifth. He said, I'll be taking over the thing. And then he quickly walked back his comments. This was all a very big plot. Everyone was involved. Trump also persisted pushing on Pence, trying to, you know, more direct means of pressuring him. He continued on January 4th. He summoned the vice president to meet with John Eastman the lawyer who'd been especially influential in pressing the case that the vice president could intervene. During that meeting, Eastman appeared to acknowledge that Pence did not have the power to arbitrarily settle the election, but he maintained that the vice president could send the results back to states to reevaluate the results over a 10-day recess. Just delay it for a while. And you remember the email we saw that the committee handed over to Judge Carter, Judge Carter, who decided that Trump and Eastman committed crimes. 18 U.S. Code 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States, and 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, obstructing an official proceeding. And in that email, he said, you know, hey, why don't you just violate the Electoral Count Act just one little more time and delay the count for 10 days? While we what, right? What were they going to do? Seize voting machines by, at gunpoint? There were memos for that. In one of the emails, they say, we're just trying to cast doubt on the results, which seemed to be one of the M.O.s of Trump, right? Calling up Rosen at the DOJ saying, just announce that there's an investigation. We just need to cast out. Same with the Zelensky extortion. Don't you don't have to investigate Biden and Burisma. Just say you're going to. That's all we need is to cast doubt. Trump tweeted on the morning of January 5th that Pence could reject electors. He had tried to persuade some of his informal advisors outside the White House to go to the Naval Observatory, that's the vice president's official residence, to seek an audience to pressure Pence. That day, Trump spoke with Pence again, pressing him to do what the vice president said he could not. 
And it was that day that Mark Short called Mr. Mr. Gables, Tim, into his office. About 1 p.m., Pence released a memo making clear he disagreed with the president about his power to intervene in the certification. The memo was not shared with the White House counsel in advance. The trust between the offices was shattered by then. Soon, Trump supporters swarmed the Capitol, breaking through doors and windows, disrupting the count. Mr. Giebel's rushed Mr. Pence from the Senate chamber and took him to an underground loading dock. The vice president refused to get in the waiting car, despite Giebel's repeated urging, believing it would let the rioters and others score a victory against core Democratic processes. Pence stayed there for hours until it was safe to return to the Senate chamber, where he insisted on finishing the certification process. And y'all, this is just one of the conspiracies to obstruct the electoral vote count that the committee will illustrate during public hearings, which again begin Thursday, June 9th at 8 p.m. I want everyone to be aware, by the way, that the official Supreme Court decision on Roe could drop that day. And I just want everyone to know it's not a distraction, okay? The, The Supreme Court isn't trying to distract us from the hearings. The Supreme Court schedule has been set for a very long time set well before the committee decided to schedule these hearings this month. Up next, and uh, this one was obvious, but made my blood boil nonetheless, several strategy memos and private communications prepared for a variety of conservative candidates and organizations reviewed by Rolling Stone in the days following the Uvalde school massacre were clear. Change the topic to literally anything else and let this news cycle run its course. Quote, Ignore guns. Talk inflation. One such memo, written for a top-tier GOP Senate candidate, succinctly reads, citing polling data of voter concerns ahead of the critical 2022 midterm elections. Other documents predictably decried liberal desires for gun-grabbing and gun confiscation and made it whataboutism-type references to gun violence in Chicago. So, these memos said, talk about Chicago. We've heard Republican senators talk about Chicago and Congress people accuse the Dems of gun confiscation and gun grabbing, and talk about inflation, gas prices. Change the subject. Let it run its course. It will go away. The people of America are stupid. They will forget. That's what these memos are saying. Now, on Friday, May 27th, three days after the Uvalde shooting, the RNC, Republican National Committee, distributed a memo of talking points and messages advising to its surrogates and media allies what to say. The email began with some pro forma thoughts and prayers for the victims of their families, then went to thank the members of law enforcement who responded to the scene and killed the shooter. But the bulk of the memo, part of the series of RNC pundit prep that typically lists the party's weekly political priorities, had a conspicuous omission. It did not include any actual talking points about the latest school massacre in the United States a mass shooting that dominated American media and political conversation only to be bookended by news of other mass shootings carried out with firearms. The email did detail, however, what you need to know about this week's primary elections and listed the RNC's recommended reading from Fox News, Breitbart, Newsmax, and the Washington Examiner on topics such as Joe Biden's failed immigration record. So that's the messaging. So every time you see a Republican talk about Dems wanting to confiscate guns, or inflation, or gas prices. They've been told to say that by the RNC, funded by the NRA. All right, I'll be right back in a minute with Glenn Kirshner. We're going to discuss the Navarro indictment and uh, Department of Justice declination to charge Meadows and Scavino for the same crimes. Stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
Hey, everyone, I know what you should get your dad for Father's Day. It's an aura frame. They make digital picture frames designed to easily fill your home with photos of family and friends shared instantly from an app. With an Aura digital frame, get your dad a gift that's as thoughtful and as it is effortless to set up and use. You can instantly frame photos from any device anywhere, and you can invite the whole family in on fun through the Aura app. You can even preload photos and add a personal video message that will display as soon as dad connects his frame. It has free unlimited storage. You can add as many photos and videos as you like and invite as many people as you want into the frame. Meticulously calibrated for color and brightness, their state-of-the-art display eliminates screen fatigue and ensures your photos look like the real deal. It's fun and cool. Dads will love it. Every frame comes with a beautiful gift-ready box. You can share 10,000 photos and videos worry-free with no storage limit. Easily invite family and friends with the Aura app. There's no memory cards, hidden fees, or subscription costs. Uh, I picked out the new Carver Lux landscape frame. It's beautiful. It has great modernist feel. It matches my mid-mod vibe. Uh, and... Uh, it even intuitively displays related photos side by side if you want it to, which I love. It's got all these cool settings. It's the best. Aura Frames was named number one digital frame by Wirecutter and The Strategist. It's guaranteed to make him smile this Father's Day. And from now until Father's Day, save on the perfect gift. Get up to $20 off while supplies last by going to AuraFrames.com and using code DAILYBEANS, all one word. That's up to $20 off while supplies last by going to AuraFrames, that's A-U-R-A frames.com. And using code DAILYBEANS, all one word, at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And I'm really excited about our other sponsor today. It's Jiminy's and their wholesome, planet-friendly dog food and treats. If you care about the environment and have a dog like I do, consider reducing their carbon paw print with their sustainable dog food and treats made from cricket protein. First off, dogs love the taste. Olive loves it so much more than her last dog food. And they're so good, I can use them at, to, for training treats, which is amazing. And they include a nutritious plant-based ingredients like sweet potatoes, blueberries, peanut butter, and pumpkin. So it makes me happy to know it's healthy and good for her as well. Jiminy's is sustainably made because it's cricket protein. It uses less water and land to produce and drastically eliminates greenhouse gas emissions versus traditional animal protein dog food. One bag of Jiminy's Cricket Protein Treats saves 220 gallons of water. One little bag of treats, 220 gallons of water versus traditional animal protein treats. And that's amazing, especially in the droughts we're having right now. And one of the reasons I'm excited I switched to Jiminy's is it's also easy for dogs to digest. It's easy on their tummies because Cricket Protein has a fiber that's a prebiotic, which supports a healthy gut in your dog. So I really recommend them. Jiminy's is also good for dogs with food sensitivity or dogs with allergies. Insect protein is considered hypoallergenic for dogs versus other allergy-triggering proteins like beef, chicken, fish, and soy. In fact, veterinarians are using Jiminy's dog food in elimination diets to determine food allergies. To learn more and save 25% on your first purchase, go to Jiminy's.com DailyBeans25 and use code DailyBeans25 at checkout. That's Jiminy's, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S dot com DailyBeans25 with code DailyBeans25. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm joined today by my friend, former federal prosecutor and host of Justice Matters on YouTube, a channel you really need to subscribe to, especially with the 1-6 hearings just about to start and the Department of Justice investigation into the tippy top of the coup heating up. Please welcome Glenn Kirshner. Hello, Glenn. Hey, AG. How are you? I'm good and confused after this weekend. <laughs> so, we had a spectacular arrest of Pete Navarro at an airport as he was trying to board a plane to Tennessee uh, one day after he was supposed to comply with a Department of Justice subpoena for additional documents and communications with Donald Trump. And a couple of months after he about three or four months after he failed to comply 
with a uh, committee, January 6th committee subpoena. And that's what he was indicted for and charged and arrested for, uh, for, for flouting that 1-6 committee subpoena. But at the same time, we heard about a letter from the Department of Justice to the January 6th committee. And it, it was a declination of prosecution or in, uh, what did they say, uh, starting an, an investigation or a prosecution into Mark Meadows and, and Dan Scavino, right? Chief of Staff, Deputy Chief of Staff. And so it was sort of a little bit of mixed messaging that we got over the weekend. And I was hoping you might be able to clear a little bit of that up for us, as you did in one of your amazing Justice Matters videos that you put out over the weekend. AG, I took my stab at the three most likely contenders for why the justice gods gave us a little something one minute and then took it away the next because, you know, if anybody was deserving of a federal indictment for contempt of Congress, it was Peter Navarro, as was Steve Bannon. But we know four people were referred for prosecution for, for defying congressional subpoenas. Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino were the other two. So it turns out DOJ is batting two for four. Right. And as I said in my video, batting 500 is pretty darn good if you're a major league baseball player. Not so good if you're in the business of dispensing justice. So here, here's my, uh, my best guess at what the three most likely possibilities are. One, we often act in a coordinated way when we are investigating crime and we, when we are about to indict people, right? The most, um, the most usual example of that is when we're about to indict a whole bunch of gang members, for example, we do what we call a coordinated takedown, where we take everybody down simultaneously. Because the last thing you want to do is lock up one gang member only to, you know, alert all of the other gang members that, oh, they're coming for us. They can dispose of evidence. They can flee. They can tamper with witnesses. So we do coordinated takedowns. Well, AG, we also often do coordinated interviews. So it might be that the Department of Justice not only subpoenaed Peter Navarro for a June 2nd appearance and interviewed him and had what we call a come to Jesus with him and said, look, Pete, you either cooperate and tell us about Donald Trump's crimes and your own crimes and the crimes of others, and we can work with you. But if you decline our invitation, we will indict you. And of course, the next day, June 3rd, the indictment was unsealed. They could very well have had similar meetings separately with Meadows and with Scavino. And they said, look, guys, we're preparing to indict you for contempt of Congress, even though it's more challenging because you have a somewhat more robust executive privilege claim than guys like Bannon and Navarro. But we're prepared to indict you. Do you want to cooperate? And they also partially helped. They by, they gave some documents over to the committee and and sort of had better lawyers than Navarro in that they, I guess, effectively strung people along for quite some time. Yeah, we, we can call it stringing them along. We can call it engaging with the committee. <laughs> and, 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 and I'll talk about that in one second. But let's assume that they had this coordinated meeting with these three individuals and Meadows and Scavino said, you know what? You got me. I'm tired of covering up Donald Trump's crimes and exposing myself to yet additional criminal liability in the process. I'm ready to cooperate. Now, given who Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino are, maybe that's not the most likely 
possibility, but it, it could have played out that way. Now, you're precisely right, AG, that, you know, there was some information that, look, they were trying to comply. They were coordinating on dates for their appearances. Mark Meadows gave over literally thousands of documents that turned out to be deeply incriminating of Donald Trump. So listen, if they were to indict uh, the, the chief of staff of the president and the deputy chief of staff, first of all, there is a, an a OLC memo. There's always another OLC memo, isn't there? Suggesting that the Department of Justice, you know, should shy away from indicting the highest of the high executive branch officials for contempt of Congress if they defy congressional subpoenas, precisely because of this robust executive privilege claim that they might have. But let's assume they indicted Meadows. Meadows would have lost in the court, I assume, and his attorney would have argued to the jury, hey, ladies and gentlemen, he gave over thousands of documents that were deeply incriminating of Donald Trump. But when they wanted him to continue to give over stuff, stuff that he assessed might actually have some executive privilege. He said, no, that that's not a really compelling defense, but it's what I would call a straight face defense. And you might pick off a juror or two. Now, we're setting aside the fact that that doesn't really apply to him blowing off a subpoena for testimony. But you know what? When defendants give jurors half a loaf in defense of one count, they often apply it to everything. So that's that's one possibility. The other possibility is that they did not want to, at this moment in time, indict Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino for a relatively minor charge, a misdemeanor failing to comply with a a congressional subpoena when they are preparing to indict them for the whole shebang, that's a legal term, for the conspiracy to defraud or commit offenses against the United States. That would be like a prosecutor proceeding on a jaywalking charge when they're about to bang somebody out for murder. You don't necessarily want to start with such a weak minor charge first. So, you know, these are just some of the possibilities and there are others. Yeah. And it and it's in the code, right, to, that uh, for prosecutorial discretion, they're advised to go after the more serious charges first. And and you know what? I think this could be a sprinkling of all three of those. It doesn't have to be, you know, you know, as you said, it doesn't have to be exclusively one of those three, because, you know, I could see them all coming into the come to Jesus meeting and and Navarro going just popping off at the mouth and being a total pain in the ass. But then Meadows and Scavino, who probably have really good lawyers being like, can we get back to you or you know, maybe if we had some more time or, you know, doing the thing where they sort of, you know, have to go through the due process of giving them the ability to respond or whatever, you know, the, the way they jerked around the committee. Yeah. Uh, and then also I can see that the DOJ saying, look, this is a pain in the ass case for a misdemeanor. Fuck it. Prosecutorial discretion. We're not going to bring these charges. And uh, we should inform an interested agency, which is this the one six committee, because that's also in the, the federal code, right? Like we, you should tell them uh, in important cases, anybody else who is interested, whether you decline to prosecute. What I found interesting was the vagueness of that letter, which says to me that it is what you are saying and then that they are going after bigger charges, because if, if they they can't say that in the letter, you know, well, we decline to prosecute because we're going after bigger stuff because then they're jeopardizing that investigation. Because no one writes a letter to Congress with any expectation of secrecy. Uh, hello, Jim Comey. And so 
I think it could be a little bit of a, a, a sprinkling of all of these uh, possible things. Plus, as you know, and as you've said, if they went just indicted on these misdemeanor charges for Meadows and, Meadows and Scavina, then the Sixth Amendment kicks in and informants can't be used against them. And you, you have to you know, give them all the evidence that you have against them in any investigation that you're working on, which could blow the bigger one as well. So, yeah, I think, uh, I, I, you know, talk a little bit about how it could be a little of all three. Oh, I think it is. I think it's a smattering of all of it. And we know Merrick Garland is an institutionalist. Sometimes I feel like that's a dirty word because, you know, we can stick with our institutions, norms and traditions, you know, right up to the end of our democracy if we're not careful. Um, but he is. And I think part of it was this sense of, you know, we really don't want to indict a chief of staff and deputy chief of staff to the president of the United States where we kind of have a policy that um, that counsels caution under those circumstances, because this issue will might recur in the future. Now, I think that's misguided and, and almost a quaint notion that if the Republicans take control, they will somehow look to this atmospheric precedent. Well, the Dems didn't do it, so maybe we shouldn't do it. Yeah, right. Remember, Newt Gingrich said if the Republicans take power, the members of the J6 committee are going to jail. So we kind of know how the Republicans play. But Merrick's an institutionalist. He does think long term. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, and so I do think it's a smattering of everything we've been talking about. What I think it's perfectly consistent with, though, is this declination is in large part because more significant charges are coming. You know, look what Liz Cheney said just today or yesterday. She said mm -hmm. this was an extraordinarily you know, dangerous, well-coordinated, far-reaching criminal conspiracy by Trump and his allies. So, you know, I've already got the popcorn ready for, for June 9. I can't wait to see what Jamie Raskin keeps telling us will blow the roof off the House. Yeah. And if and, you know, at least those bigger charges are being considered and you don't want to blow that consideration on a, on a 30 day Mando minimum misdemeanor charge for for Meadows and Scavino. I think they're much bigger fish than that. So thank you so much. And yeah, and I agree. You know, Matthew Graves might have been the one who decided, you know, it's his office who said, you know what, this is this is going to be a pain in the ass. I don't for what to charge Meadows and Scavino. And we got other stuff going on. Fuck it. You know, who knows? Who knows how it went? They I'm sure they had to get approval from Merrick Garland. I, I doubt that they were at odds with what they wanted no, to do. I don't think they were. And I hope someday, A.G., we get an answer to the question of why did they feel compelled to announce to do and announce these three things all at the same time? At the same, There is a tactical play there that I've got some ideas kicking around in the back of my head why they did it all on the same day. But. I, it, these are really just rumblings in my head. I'm not even prepared to jump out and say what I think it is. I hope we get an answer to that question someday. I, I hope we do, too. The best I could come up with is is that in the code, it says that you're supposed to notify the agencies. Doesn't but, mean you but, have to do it all the same day. Right. And it also says should. It doesn't say shall. And yeah, why the week before the hearings begin? Why not just keep quiet about it? I mean, if your whole fucking play for the last year and a half is to keep your mouth shut, why did you send a letter to Congress you knew would be out? And let me say this, A.G., doesn't this at least in part put the contempt of Congress ball back in the J6 committee court? Because let's remember, DOJ couldn't get it done. 
But Congress can still get it done with its inherent power of contempt. They're not going to, I would assume, because they haven't done it thus far. But I I can only listen to them complain about DOJ's decision, but so much because they have yet to take that weapon out of their own dang arsenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but also probably for fear that uh, the Republicans would use their power of inherent contempt. And they don't need the Democrats to do it to get to do that anyway. They they would do it no matter what. So we will see. So vote. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be watching on uh, June 9th. Thanks so much. I can't wait to see what happens. I think things are starting to heat up and we appreciate everything that, you, that you're doing covering this. It's amazing work. Everybody check out the Justice Matters YouTube channel. Subscribe when you get there so that you can get the latest updates because a lot of them, I have a feeling, we are now at the end. We're now at the point where the Department of Justice is starting to subpoena loud recalcitrant howlers, which means... They're just about done. So thank you. Thank you so much, Glenn. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks, AG. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening today. We will be back tomorrow with Dana and the good news. If you have any good news, send it into us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Thanks again to our patrons. It is going to be a hell of a week. So buckle up. And until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. Also vote blue over Q. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.